Hi, and welcome to Procedure Ready OBGYN, a podcast aimed at helping you excel during your clinical clerkship in OBGYN. My name is Dr. Jennifer Dory. I'm an assistant professor of obstetrics and gynecology at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and former resident at Thomas Jefferson University Hospital. I'm the founder of Procedure Ready, a collection of resources aimed to advance your clinical medical education. Let's get started. Today, we're going to be talking about preterm labor and PPROM, or preterm premature rupture of membranes. Um, For all of you guys who like written resources to go with these audio snippets, check out ACOG Practice Bulletin number 171. It'll cover preterm labor. There's another one on PPROM as well. Um, These are short, usually two to seven page documents that run through the most up-to-date information and evidence on all of the major OBGYN topics. You should be able to get access through your um, university email addresses if you want those. All right, so first let's talk about preterm labor. So preterm labor, essentially anybody who is in labor or threatening to go into labor before 37 weeks. So again, 37 weeks is term. So anybody 36 weeks and change or less is going to be preterm. Now, in order to be preterm labor, you need to have um, both be preterm and have that cervical change with contraction. So you need to actually be in labor. You will see some people admitted who are not technically in labor, but were so concerned that they could go into labor and they're early that we take these precautions for them anyway. But really what we need to know is, are they actually making change? There's a couple things you're going to do differently when you see these patients in triage and when you're trying to evaluate to see if they are going into labor. So step one, You're going to, you know, obviously talk to them, put them on the monitor, do the normal things. But before you can do a sterile vaginal exam or a cervical exam, we want to do a speculum exam for all of these patients. This is because we want to collect some cultures. We want to look at all of the things that if she is in labor, could we fix anything? Could we change anything? Could we prevent an outcome for somebody um, or change an outcome by treating an infection? So we're going to collect swabs for gonorrhea chlamydia. We're going to um, collect a swab for group B strep just in case she does go into preterm labor. We'll need to treat her if she's positive or if she's unknown. Um, We can evaluate her for ruptured membranes while we're there. If she has any potential symptoms of ruptured membranes, we should evaluate her for if she could also be P-prompt. And then there's this other swab called an FFN or a fetal fibronectin. This is a swab swab that looks for a very specific chemical released uh, as somebody goes into labor. And we use it only in preterm labor because it can also be released for a number of other reasons. Um, It has a very high false positive rate. So I know we're going back to epibiostats here, but if it has a negative value, if it comes back negative, it has a very strong negative predictive value. I mean, if it's negative, I can be fairly certain that you are not going to go into labor. If it is positive, it has a better chance of being a false positive than a true positive. I mean, I don't know what to make of a positive. It doesn't really mean anything. It doesn't mean she's going to go into labor, but it also doesn't mean that she's not. So FFNs are kind of tricky to work with um, and tricky to think about in terms of when they are most clinically appropriate. A lot of different institutions are going to have different protocols for when to use them, how to use them, using them in conjunction with other tests like a cervical length. But the important thing to know about them is they're easily contaminated. So they can be contaminated by lube. So the basic lube you put on um, a speculum when you put the speculum in, so you have to be careful with your lube. Uh, Also why you can't check their cervix first. Um, They can be contaminated by blood or by semen. 
So it'll seem, it might seem weird if you go in with a resident to talk to a patient and one of the first questions they ask is, have you had sex in the last 24 hours? If they have, even if they used a condom or barrier protection, there probably was lube or spermicide or something on the other side of that condom that will likely inactivate this test or really make it a false positive. Um, so if there's gel in the vagina already, if there's if she's bleeding, or if they've uh, admitted to sex in the last 24 hours, we do not collect an FFN. Those are contraindications to it because it just won't mean anything and it's a waste of a kind of expensive test. All right, so then evaluate her for rupture if you need to evaluate her for rupture. And once, only once all of those things are collected, will you check her cervix? And you'll find out, is her cervix changing? Is there any change in dilation or effacement? Even if they're not changed, even if their cervix isn't dilated, they're closed, if there's a concern that her cervix could be really short in the preterm setting, that is also concerning. Something we don't even really think about or worry about a term because a term, it doesn't matter. Preterm, if you have a short cervix, it can mean that you're more likely to go into labor soon. Um, and that would be, you know, there are more opportunities for us to intervene and change some fetal outcomes there. So, if she's not obviously changed, then we kind of go through these pathways, depending on your institution, to look at the cervical length and look at potentially sending off that fetal fibronectin or that FFN. Um, for people who like to be very specific, if her cervical length is less than 20 millimeters, that's when we're more concerned about um, preterm labor. That's also when the FFN is no longer valid. It's only valid for those greater than 20 uh, millimeters. If it's shorter than 20 millimeters, it's again, has a very high false positive rate, so it's not recommended to send it. All right, so let's say this woman came in and we've ruled her in for preterm labor. Let's talk about all the things we got to do if somebody is in preterm labor. So she comes in, you see that um, she was checked in the office a few days ago for reporting a couple contractions and she was closed long and high. We check her today. She's now two, 50% effaced and minus two stations. So babies moved down, opened the cervix and thinned it out a little bit. So what are all the things we're going to do to protect baby? Because at this point, it's, you know, it's not a safety risk for mom to give birth, but it's a safety risk for baby. So we want to see what we can to stabilize baby. First thing we're going to do is we're going to think about um, protecting baby's lungs and baby's ability to breathe. So we're going to give betamethasone, and these are steroids for fetal lung development. They also protect against several other neonatal outcomes, including neck or necrotizing enterocolitis um, and other important fetal outcomes. But we mostly, when we talk to moms about them, we mostly talk about betamethasone for fetal lung development. It really helps decrease the rate of um, oxygenation needed and, and positive pressure ventilation for babies, um, helps them increase their surfactant development to that age. Um, so we do the betamethasone. There's, again, a couple different protocols. Most commonly, they're given as two shots, 24 hours apart. I warn moms before the nurses go in there, it is usually a gluteal shot. So they do have to take this shot usually in the butt. It needs a big muscle um, and it does hurt. So I warn them about that ahead of time, but it, it's for baby and most moms are willing to do whatever we need to for, for baby. So um, betamethasone, then we talk about um, baby's brain. So the thing we can do to help stabilize baby's brain is actually IV magnesium. And that's actually something we talked about in an earlier podcast about hypertensive disorders in pregnancy. So magnesium can be confusing to medical students because we use it for two main indications and sometimes actually for both of these at the same time. But magnesium sulfate has been shown to decrease the rate of cerebral palsy in children born before 32 weeks. So if a baby um, is less than 32 weeks old and mom is threatening to deliver or go into labor, we do 12 hours of magnesium for what we call neuroprotection to stabilize the membranes within the brain and decrease these um, rates of cerebral palsy after um, development. 
So we've got magnesium on board going through the IV. It's going to be a 12 hour long infusion. Again, I warn mom, it makes them feel crummy. They just feel lethargic and gross and sometimes a little bit nauseous. It's not fun, but again, 12 hours, it's a finite duration and hopefully it'll help. Um, Betamethasone for baby's lungs. And then we don't know in this case, most of the time when they come in for preterm labor, we don't know about their GBS status because we don't usually collect group B strep in the clinic until you're 35 to 36 weeks. So if they're GBS unknown and preterm, that's a high risk for a baby to get GBS septicemia. Um, And the worst thing, the only worst thing than a preterm baby is a preterm baby with an infection. So we want to make sure we cover them for infection. So if we don't know their GBS status, we collected a GBS status or GBS swab while they were in triage already. So we have that and we'll send that. But as long as she's still unknown and threatening to deliver, we're going to give her penicillin. Um, If she's allergic to penicillin, if it's a minor reaction like a rash that's not hives or um, something small, then we usually go ahead and give them ANCEF because there's only, you know, about 10% cross-reactivity between penicillins and cephalosporins um, in terms of allergies. And if it's a minor allergy, again, it might be worth risking it. If we don't know um, her reaction or if it's reported anaphylactic reaction, you know, facial swelling, shortness of breath, true anaphylaxis, um, then we can't give a cephalosporin. And at that point, we're kind of, our hands are tied and we have to give vancomycin, which really is not fun for patients. Um, and we do our best to try to avoid it. Um, if we had had time to send the penicillin, the GBS swab, we send it with sensitivities for clindamycin and um, erythromycin. If it's sensitive to both, we can give her clinda um, rather than uh, the vancomycin. But without those sensitivities, there's a lot of resistance amongst group B strep to clinda. So we won't treat with clinda if we're not sure it'll get it. All right. So we've done magnesium, we've done betamethasone, and we've done penicillin. Now we want to do what we can to try to make sure baby gets the benefit of all of these things, or at least for the very least, the betamethasone. So what we'll do if somebody is less than um, 34 weeks is we will do what's called tocolysis, meaning to try to stop the contractions, to try to relax the uterus. So there's a couple different uterine relaxants that we can use. If you are... um, Less than 34 weeks, we've got two options. We can do indocin, which is an NSAID, and we tend to do that only for very short courses, less than 32 weeks. The reason why NSAIDs, you know, in pregnancy, we don't usually give people NSAIDs because it can cause premature closure of that PDA, the um, patent ductus arteriosus. And if that closes, again, we're causing more trouble for baby than we're preventing. So we do very short courses, no more than 48 hours um, of the indocin if you're less than 32 weeks. If you're more than 32 weeks, um, nifedipine or procardia is the preferred tocolytic. And you do procard- you do the nifedipine, the short-acting one, the um, instant release, the IR. Um, the bad thing about the IR procardia is that it can um, drop people's blood pressure. We use it as a great blood pressure medication. So for people with low blood pressures, um, it can make them symptomatic and sometimes cause trouble. We sometimes have to hold it for low blood pressures. All right, so again, we've done betamethasone, we've done penicillin, we've done magnesium, we've done um, tocolysis, and then we're at the same time, we're just giving them some IV fluids because sometimes I sort of tell moms we can kind of wash them away. If we hydrate them, dehydration often spurs contractions. So if we can hydrate them up, sometimes we're able to you know wash away some of the contractions for them. <laughs> 
We also do a NICU consult and we send all those cultures we collect in, in addition to a urinalysis because sometimes preterm labor, while it isn't usually true preterm labor, you can get a lot of ur- uterine irritability from infections, especially infections near the uterus. So bladder infections, vaginal infections, obviously infections within the uterus, choreo, um, can all, all cause contractions and irritation. So if there's any infection we can rule out or treat and get rid of, that's the best case scenario. But even sometimes if there's not something to treat, just giving them the right fluids and stopping their contractions for a few days while we do the betamethasone will be enough to kind of knock it out. And sometimes it doesn't come back for days to weeks after that. All right. So preterm labor, that's the most of it. They're usually hanging out with us for those two days while they get their betamethasone shots two days apart. Um, after that, we stop the tocolytics, we wait, we watch, and we see if they go back, you know, start laboring again after we take away the tocolytics and the things that are falsely stopping their contractions. Um, if they're stable, sometimes they can go home. Sometimes they come back the next day. And sometimes, like we said, they don't come back for weeks. Um so that is most of preterm labor. So magnesium for neuroprotection if you're less than 32 weeks. Betamethasone for fetal lung development um, for everybody less than 34 weeks. And then newer data in the last few years have actually shown some benefit for those up to 37 weeks. So we've started doing it in select cases up to 37 weeks. Generally speaking, we're not expanding that. So not if you're diabetic, not if you're um, ruptured past 34 weeks and... Um, not if you've already previously gotten steroids, so you wouldn't do a second course of steroids. But for some select patients, again, that won't be on your test, I wouldn't imagine, just because that's newer data. But for your your test purposes and your rotation purposes, really, everybody should get steroids less than 34 weeks, at least one course. And then some people will be eligible for a rescue course, but that's probably more than you need to know on your third year rotation. All right, so let's talk about PPROM. So PPROM is preterm premature rupture of membranes. So these are people who are sitting at home, they're doing nothing, they're not usually feeling anything, and all of a sudden they're like, oh my gosh, did I just pee on myself? What just happened? Um, Turns out, sometimes it wasn't pee. Sometimes it was. So we got to make sure it's actually amniotic fluid. You'd be surprised the number of pregnant ladies, baby kicks your bladder, they accidentally pee on themselves a little bit. There's a lot of people who think that they've ruptured their water that haven't actually ruptured their membranes. So um, same thing as the term rule out rupture. Um, You're doing a speculum exam, except in these cases, you're collecting the swabs we talked about. You want to collect the GBS swab, collect the gonorrhea chlamydia swab, collect um, a vaginitis or do a wet mount to make sure there's not yeast or bacterial vaginosis or anything else that we need to treat while we're evaluating her. Um, once you've done that, most of the time, if we really if we think they're ruptured, we're not going to digitally examine the cervix. So the vagina, by by nature, by you know necessity, is not a sterile place. It has healthy bacteria in it. It has a lot of organisms in it that, in part, you know, are what keeps it healthy and you know for itself, its relative version of clean. Um, so I don't want to push that vaginal flora, that normal healthy vaginal bacteria up into a ruptured amniotic sac. So we do our best to not digitally examine these people. There's not been studies that really show that increased checking leads to infection, but it just makes sense. So people just tend to try to avoid it. So we look and we use the speculum, open it, look at the cervix. Does it visually look dilated? If it does, sometimes that will necessitate us checking her cervix so that we can tell if she's changing. Um, But most of the time, if it looks visually closed or if we think we can tell, it's, it's only about a centimeter open, I can probably visually guess that. We'll just leave it be and just have done the speculum exam to confirm rupture. So we'll confirm the rupture usually by pooling, nitrosine, and ferning, at least two out of the three. 
um, to be good about it. If you have equivocal, you can use the fancier tests, including AmniSure um, and things like that at some facilities. Um, the other things you can do if you are really unsure, you can look at their amniotic fluid volume, see what they have left in terms of fluid inside. And then if you're really stumped, there is something called um, a tampon dye test. And this does sometimes appear on your shelf and other exams. So a tampon dye test in which you put, um, typically it's a blue dye into the amniotic sac. The woman then puts a tampon in, walks around for a couple hours. You see if the tampon then turns blue. If it does, there is a small leak somewhere. Um, if it doesn't, then you you can be pretty sh- pretty good that you're um, that there isn't actually an active leak. Um, that might show up on your test. It's very rare you'll actually see that done um, in practice. Most of the time, I think we've, we're pretty good at being able to tell unless it's been a while since she's ruptured and the leak has really slowed down. All right, so once you diagnose somebody with PPROM, what are we doing? The first thing you'll hear us talk about is latency antibiotics. So latency antibiotics are a combination of two days of IV antibiotics followed by five days of PO antibiotics. And the studies have shown, they've done randomized controlled trials to show that doing these antibiotics in this order decreases or prolongs pregnancy is how I should say it. It decreases the number of people who deliver immediately. It prolongs pregnancy on average for people. And the thought is not that you are treating an active infection, but probably more so that you are um, preventing an infection from brewing and, you know, creating this latency period with these antibiotics by... um, and just calming everything down for a little while while you do your other resuscitative measures. So most of the time, the standard um, medications you're going to see are erythromycin um, and ampicillin IV for two days, followed by PO erythromycin and amoxicillin for five days for a grand total of seven days of latency antibiotics. Um, There are some newer protocols that use azithromycin instead of erythromycin, um, spurred by a shortage of erythromycin not too long ago. Um, And some places use that just to avoid having to take so many antibiotics. You can do a one-time dose of azithro rather than having to do erythro every day. It'll depend on your institution and your protocol, but both of those are fine if you should see them on your test, either azithro or um, erythro, erythro or azithro, and then ampicillin followed by amoxicillin. Um, the other things you're going to do are going to sound very familiar. So then you're going to do magnesium for neuroprotection. Again, only if you're less than 32 weeks, only if you're less than 32 weeks, you're going to do magnesium for neuroprotection. So 12 hours of IV magnesium. This is because it's like it says neuroprotection. It decreases the rate of cerebral palsy. You're going to do beta methazone for fetal lung development. If you're less than 34 weeks. You're going to give her penicillin um, if you think she's going to deliver even after those latency antibiotics. So you can start the latency antibiotics even if you think she might deliver because the ampicillin is going to cover everything the penicillin will and actually goes in through an IV faster. Um, But if you finish your latency antibiotics and you think they're going to deliver, you still don't have a GPS swab back, you should give her the penicillin. Um, The one big difference here in that you're not going to do is we don't tocalize these people. We do not try to stop their contractions. The thought being, if they're contracting and they're ruptured, there might be a reason. She might have a subclinical infection. She might have an overt infection we just haven't found or discovered yet. Um, There might be a reason she is contracting and ruptured. And then in that case, we probably don't want to stop her from contracting um, with a tocolytic. If she's going to progress, let her progress. Um, Because like we said, the only thing worse than a preterm baby is an infected preterm baby. And that's just 
safer to get the baby out, keep mom and baby um, both healthy as long as possible. And then again, a NICU consult or an MFM consult, however your institution does it to get mom and dad both information about baby and expectations and those things. And then also um, an MFM or a specialist to follow uh, mom's course if she does stay in the hospital longer, depending on your, your institution again and the protocols there. Um, all right, so PPROM, big things are latency antibiotics, either azithromycin or erythromycin and ampicillin for two days IV, and then PO, five days of erythromycin and amoxicillin, magnesium for um, neuroprotection if they're less than 32 weeks, betamethasone for fetal lung development, um, two shots, usually 24 hours apart, although you can do them 12 hours apart if you're concerned that there's more of an imminent delivery. Um, no tocolytics, so no nifedipine or um, indomethacin for these ladies, and then a NICU consult. And then it's just a waiting and watching game and um, hoping that they don't progress. Um, also, they should be scanned. You got to make sure they're cephalic and that they're um, going to be okay to labor, see if there's any contraindications to labor, and make sure that you've sort of addressed all the normal labor things as well. Thanks for listening to Procedure Ready OBGYN. Hope you found today's podcast helpful. Don't forget to subscribe below, rate the podcast, and leave me a review. Your reviews seriously make my day, every time. Have you done your pediatrics rotation yet? We just launched a new Clerkship Ready Pediatrics podcast to help. We're always looking for new collaborators. If you know a phenomenal medical educator who should make a Procedure Ready or Clerkship Ready podcast for their specialty, pass along your information and we'll see if they want to collaborate. Finally, check us out at ProcedureReady.com for more helpful resources like our flashcard deck and our YouTube playlist.